Peter chapter 1. We're going through a short series right now called Sojourners, like I said, and we're going really just section by section through the book of 1 Peter. We're starting in verse 10 today, and we're just going to read through verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, it's a wonderful opportunity to remember and make a mental note to bring a physical copy of God's Word every Sunday. After all, those words are eternal, mine will pass away. Uh, but the word of our God will endure forever. It's going to be on the screen as well. We're looking at salvation this morning. Uh, Christian, with that in mind, hear God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Friends, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God will remain forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray? Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ that you would give us joy this morning, that we would praise you because of our great salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so as we go through 1 Peter, uh, you know, why do we study the Bible, right? Why, why do we read the Bible? What is it that we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to just read so that we know more about the Bible? Is that the goal? We read so that we would know more? Uh, well, for many of us, I think, especially if we grow up in the church or you're new to the faith, we get this impression, right, that like the, the best Christians are the ones who know everything there is to know about the Bible. They know all the background information. They know all the maps, right? They know more than everybody. But is that, is that really the goal of reading the Bible, just to know more information? Well, I love the Bible, and I read it every day, and I hope you're reading it every day with us in the Ephraim Co-op. But I would suggest to you this morning that what we do when we read the Bible— what we do when we study God's Word, another way to say it is when we study theology, the study of God, theo-God-ology, the study of, when we study God, we read His Word, the ultimate goal for which we're doing that, the thing that we're trying to keep in mind, the goal is actually not just that we do theology for theology's sake. Theology in its purest form, knowing God's Word, is meant to lead us to doxology, to praising God. So I don't know why you were here this morning. Uh, I assume because you love the Lord and you want to hear his word. But I want to suggest to you this morning that everything that we do, whether it is praying for one another or praying for those elected to high positions in our society or whether it's taking communion or whether it's hearing God's word preached, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a ritual that we do. Our goal in everything that we do in this life is to bring praise to God. Our theology drives us to be joyful worshipers of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Friends, that is what we are doing when we study God's word. That's what we should be doing when we do theology and we study it, right? Our theology drives us to praising him. So if you accomplish nothing else this morning, what I want to suggest to you is that if you leave this morning having praised God and seen him in his truth, then you will have done what you needed to do today. That church will have done its job in your life. As much as I like giving you background information about the Bible, 
as much as I like studying the Bible and talking about it, what I primarily want to happen, right, when I strike the flint to the stone, what we're trying to spark is not just information. We're trying to spark in our hearts praise of God, doxology. Our study leads us to love and glorify and praise God. So with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Peter is talking about in just three simple verses. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. But what I want you to focus on is what does he mean when he talks about salvation? Now, I can give you a lecture on the theology of salvation, or instead what I can do is I can attempt to talk to you the way that Peter is talking to us so that our study of salvation leads us to praise God. So if you leave this morning knowing more about salvation, praise God. But what I really want you to do is I want you to praise God because you know more about your salvation. Your salvation should make you praise God more. And if you are bored by your salvation, if you are bored by the concept that you and I have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, something is wrong with our hearts. There is a block prohibiting us from getting to the doxology that we were made to do. So with that in mind, we're going to do some theology this morning. We're going to study God's word. We're going to study what it means that you and I have salvation in Christ Jesus. But we're going to do it in a way, Lord willing, that by the power of his spirit, we'll praise him because of it. So let's look right there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Now, Peter says, concerning this salvation, right? This is actually a very long run-on sentence in the original Greek. Uh, all of sort of chapter 1, verses 3 through the following, right? You know, they, you know, it's like a William Faulkner novel. You know, a lot of the New Testament guys, they didn't know what a period was. They just kept talking, right? And so if you want to know what someone, someone knows their Southern Gothic literature, that's wonderful. In 1 Peter chapter 1, though, uh, he's, he's talking about how you and I, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. We have an inheritance. We have a living hope. And so he's continuing on that theme right there in verse 10. He says, now let's pause, and I want you to contemplate your salvation, right? So he's sort of double-clicking and saying, let's pause, let's slow down, and let's focus on your salvation, right? Verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation. So what is salvation? You know, have you ever noticed how a lot of people in the church, they use words, and we don't always know what they mean, like we use glorification, sanctification, you know, there's, uh, I don't know, salvation, you know, all these words, adoptification, glorification. You know, we have all these words, and sometimes we can use them interchangeably, and we don't really know what they're talking about, right? They're just, uh, you know, a word that keeps going, right? It's like when you think about all the people in the Old Testament, right? They're the, you know, the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Satellites and all those other kind, right? We can just slip, slip something in there, and we don't really know what the difference is, right? So what is salvation? Well, I apologize if you already know what this word is. But sometimes it's fun just to look at something really beautiful, even if you already know it's beautiful. Salvation is beautiful. And what salvation is, is it means that you and I are saved by Jesus Christ. What it means that if you and I profess Jesus is Lord, we repent of our sins, we turn from them, we give our lives to Jesus, and we say Jesus is Lord, not anything else, right? Not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. We bow the knee to King Jesus, you and I are saved. We're saved. That's what salvation is. It's the state of being saved. So what is it then that you and I are saved from? What do you mean saved? Saved from what? 
Okay, well, Peter says in verses 3 and 4, you know, that we have an inheritance, a living hope that we're going to heaven, right? But what are we saved from? Well, if you read 1 Peter, Peter's going to mention three things that you and I are saved from. Maybe there's more, but I chose three that Peter specifically talks about. The first thing that you and I are saved from in the gospel is, number one, is being separated from God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in the same book, Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus has come to die as the righteous one for the unrighteous, for people like you and me who are sinners, so that he can remove the separation and bring us back to God. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We were straying like sheep. We were separated from him. So part of what God does in the gospel is he's saving us from living a life that is separated from him. All right, the next thing that Peter says we're saved from is God's judgment. We're saved from God's judgment. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter says, It is time for judgment to begin in the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, Jesus says in John 3 that um, unless we believe in the Son of God, the wrath of God remains on us. You see, the gospel is sort of the terrifying news that by ourselves we are separated from God, that we are born into sin and we continue in our sin, and that if we do not repent and do not turn to Christ, death will be just the continuation of the trajectory of our lives. We will continue to live for eternity separated from God. We stand under God's judgment. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one, there's no one who does good. No one seeks God. That's a quote from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, we're condemned by our own sinfulness. We're separated from God and we are rightfully under his judgment. The third thing that we are saved from, according to Peter, if that wasn't bad enough, (laughs) if that's not sobering enough, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that you and I are saved from the devil and demonic forces. Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And of course, that may be a challenge for some of us, but as Christians, we believe both in a natural, physical world that God created, but we also believe that there is a spiritual realm which we cannot see, but that oppresses and assaults us, that there are demonic forces, there are evil things at work. Primarily, the devil, the great fallen angel who opposes God, and we are oppressed by him. So, of course, what I'm suggesting to you, and I think what Peter and the gospel suggest to us, is that until we know Jesus Christ, until we know his grace and his truth, we're separated from God. We're under his righteous judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for the things that we have done in the body, whether good or ill as Romans 14, 10 says. And then, of course, in this life, we are also assaulted by demonic forces. So, shockingly, right, the good news begins by explaining how dire our situation is. So, what in the world is going to fix 
this fallen, broken humanity of which we're a part, right? I mean, I don't think it's very hard to convince people that sin is a reality, that we live in a fallen world. And then, of course, the scary thing is, if we're honest with ourselves, we all recognize that we contribute to the fallenness of this world, right? (laughs) That we ourselves are part of the problem. That's what the Old Testament prophets understood about themselves. I mean, even Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Even the apostle Peter, when he met Jesus, said, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. So what in the world, if if things are this bad, (laughs) okay, Dustin, if things are this bad, we're all separated from God, we're all under his righteous judgment, and they're demonic force, what, okay, great. Now, what's the hope? What's going to fix this world? Well, friends, I think what Peter is wanting us to grasp in this verse is that was the burning question for the prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, this week, if you've read Amos with us, you know that they see that this world has fallen. They know that all of the nations have sinned. Even Judah and Israel have sinned. What's going to save this broken world? What can save us from our sin? If God is righteous, how can he not decree a righteous judgment? What is going to save us? And so they search diligently to know how is God going to fix this world. You know what they look for in the old prophecies? You know what they're looking for? They're looking for hope. And primarily what they're looking for is grace. Grace. How is God going to forgive us? How is God going to fix this broken world? How is God going to prove himself not just just, but merciful and all-forgiving and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? You see, that's what Peter says the Old Testament prophets we're looking forward to. Look at verse 10. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired diligently, inquiring what person or when or what kind of time the Messiah would come to save us all. Doesn't matter which Old Testament prophet you look at, whether it was Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Amos. They all know that there's something desperately wrong with this world. And they are yearning, they are searching, they search diligently through the Old Testament saying, okay, I know God has promised that there would be a king who would bring righteousness. When's that king going to come? I know God has promised to be forgiving, but how can he really actually forgive everything that we have done? What could possibly redeem our sin? When there's generations of failure. What could it be? They searched and they sought it diligently. They studied the scriptures. They looked and said, how is God going to fix this? Let me give you an example of what I think this looks like in the Old Testament. If you can go to Job, if you can go to the book of Job, I know that's kind of an obscure book. Not many people have read, maybe. Uh, Job, if you want to find it, go to Psalms. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. Turn left a few pages. You'll get to Job. Go to Job chapter 9. And I'll give you an example of the Old Testament writers looking forward and searching diligently for God's grace. They were yearning for it. How, Lord, are you going to fix this world? In Job 9, if you know the story of Job, Job was a righteous man. Job was a good man. Uh, No, he had not sinned in a big enough way to deserve any of the the awful things that had fallen on him. Job was a righteous man. He had not done this egregious sin that would cause him to lose all of his kids and his family and his wealth and his health. And so that's what the book of Job is about. God, what are you up to? I haven't done anything that bad, so why are you 
punishing me like this, right? That's Job's question, right? What's going on, God? And in Job chapter 9, Job makes a cry in his heart uh, that will echo in the heart of every Christian, because I think you'll know what the answer is. In Job chapter 9 and verse 29, Job is, is bemoaning his situation. Job chapter 9, verse 29. Job is saying, what's going to save us? Job says, I shall be condemned, right? No matter what I do, you know, God's going to find me guilty. So why then do I labor in vain? Even if I washed myself with snow and cleansed my hands with lye, yet you would still plunge me into a pit and my own clothes would abhor me, right? Uh, even if I tried my hardest to fix myself, God would still see the sin in my life, right? Even though I've done anything big, there's still something wrong with me. And look at verse 32. Job says, for he, that's God, for God is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter. Another word for that is mediator. There is no mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let God take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. But I am not so in myself. You see, the cry for Job in the Old Testament was this, what am I supposed to do? I'm a fallen person. And, and even if I tried to clean myself up, fix myself, I know God is righteous. He, he's not fooled by any of this. So if only there was a person who could lay his hand on God and me and plead my case, then I would know grace. Then I could know peace. But I don't know who that is. Friends, this is what Peter's talking about when he says the prophets searched diligently. They yearned to see the Messiah. They, learned, they yearned to see what God was going to do to fix this world. You know, Jesus says, blessed are your eyes, for you have seen that which the prophets yearned to see. You see, our salvation is something that was predicted in the Old Testament, but the prophets, they didn't see it. They yearned for it, but they couldn't quite see it. How is God going to fix this world? Job says, I wish there were somebody who could bring peace between me and God. Well, the prophet Isaiah, famously, as many of you know, years later, around the 700s, Isaiah, 700s BC, before Christ, Isaiah would look forward and say, well, God is going to fix this world. He is going to bring peace to this world. He is going to reconcile this broken world to himself. He is going to send a king, and the king will reign. And in Isaiah 49, 6, he says he is going to use this Messiah not just to bring back the preserved of Israel. Isaiah 49, 6, God says, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Isaiah heard God say, well, one day I'm going to send a Messiah, a king, and he's not just going to save Israel. He's going to save all the ends of the earth. And then Isaiah goes on just a few chapters later and he surprises us. He says, not only is this king going to come and offer salvation to all peoples, not only is he going to fulfill the prophet Joel who says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In Isaiah 53, we learn something shocking about this Messiah. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesies, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
See, friends, what the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to, what they yearned to see was the grace of God. They said, yes, God, you are righteous. We are sinners. What, what can we do? Job cried out and said, Who, I can't clean myself. What am I supposed to do? And Isaiah said, one day the Messiah would come, but he would be pierced and crushed and killed for us. But he wouldn't stay dead. He would have the light of life again, even though all of our sin would fall on him. You see, what Peter is saying about our salvation is that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, was working within the Old Testament prophets to look forward to the day that the Messiah would come, that God would prove his righteousness, that he would punish sin. But the amazing thing in Christ on the cross is God also proves not only is he all righteous, he's all merciful, and he's all gracious, and he's all forgiving, and he is all loving. He is the God of all grace because he takes the punishment on himself. He becomes the mediator between us and God. And the amazing thing in the court of God's righteousness, he says, let the punishment fall on me. I mean, think about it this way. If God is all righteous, how can he look past sin? And if God really is all loving, how can he not take the punishment for us? That's who God is. He's all forgiving. This is the God that we worship. He is consistent with his character. He says, let the punishment fall on me. You know, Paul picks up on this in 1 Timothy. He says, God, our Savior, the one who brings our salvation, God, our Savior, desires all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. That same word there, mediator, is the same word Job used. Who is the mediator who can place his hand on a holy God and sinful people and bring peace? Only Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says it this way, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has entrusted to us, entrusted to his people, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, friends, this is the gospel, the good news of our salvation. Looking down at 1 Peter with me again, let's see if you can understand what Peter's trying to show us. He says, concerning your salvation, this salvation, the Old Testament prophets who prophesied and yearned for the grace that was going to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully in the Old Testament, inquiring, who, who could ever do this? <laughs> How is it going to happen? When is the appropriate time? When is Jesus going to come? When is he going to forgive us? And they predicted, as in Isaiah 53, that he would suffer, and yet that he would be glorified, that God would prove that he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus by raising him from the dead and proving to you that God will never leave you or forsake you, that you are guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that you too will reign with him. Your salvation 
if you place your faith in Christ, is as sure as a resurrection. Jesus has guaranteed your salvation by his mighty power. Peter says, it was revealed to all these Old Testament prophets that they weren't just serving themselves, they were really serving us because now the good news has been preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Of course, what Peter is saying is God, the Trinity, the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has been working for our salvation throughout history. Notice that he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ with speaking through the Old Testament prophets. Everything in the Old Testament is leading to Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament people yearn to know the forgiveness that we know. They yearn to see the face of Jesus that we get to see every day when we open our Bibles. And that same spirit of Christ was speaking through Peter when he wrote these words. And he was pleading with his people to believe the good news. And friends, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the same Holy Spirit, the same spirit of Christ, is speaking through me to you. He is calling you to repent, to know that you can never clean yourself up, no matter how much lie you pour on yourself. You can't clean yourself up. God has already taken the punishment. Jesus has received the punishment. How much more can you punish yourself for your sins? Jesus has already been punished. What you need to do is not try to work to clean yourself up. What you need to do is you need to recognize the gospel of grace, that you are forgiven in Christ, that you are set free that only through faith in him can you be born again. Friends, the Holy Spirit speaks through his word and his prophets and through the preaching of his word. Do you have ears to hear it? And of course, if you're a Christian this morning, if you say, I already know this, I already know this. I know that, I get the gospel. Well, friends, the only application I can give you then this morning is that your theology should lead you to doxology, and if you do not want to sing and take communion in the next 10 minutes, <laughs> something needs to jumpstart your heart because you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. You are loved. And no matter what anyone else says, you are accepted eternally by the only person who actually really matters, the judge himself. You are beloved and set free. Friends, this is our salvation. This is why we study his word, so that we can know God's character and praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him from whom all blessings flow. Friends, that's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we thank you for this salvation that we have. Thank you that you have come to defeat the works of the devil, that you have come so that we would not be separated from you. Lord, that you save us from hell and separation from you from eternity so that we can live in the inheritance of heaven. Father, we ask that if there's anyone in this room that does not know the grace of Jesus Christ, that they would come to you. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be convicting those who need it and comforting those who need it and strengthening those who need it. Lord, would we give you all the praise, honor, and glory. And Father, we pray that all of our Bible study and all of our worship and our taking of communion would be taken up in the praise of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.